class is about marriage and about family. So we're going to be summarizing with that, therefore, the fourth and the sixth commandments, which means we're doing a lot today. And there are a few key points I want you to take away from this that are very counter to how, you know, our secular friends think. What is marriage about? We're going to note that marriage has an ordering towards what is it about children. What makes marriage different from friendship? What makes marriage different from all kinds of other things? There's this internal dynamic towards children. So the Second Vatican Council uses this phrase, munis, that there is a mission in marriage. That the husband and wife, when they marry, they receive a mission. We're going to note also, though, what's called responsible parenthood. So just because marriage is about children, just because a husband and a wife, by being husband and wife, should be seeking to have children, that doesn't mean they should be endlessly and continually speaking, seeking to have children. Um, so the church speaks about spacing children. So Pius XI in Casti Canubi in 1930 articulated this in an encyclical. Um, Paul VI talks about just reasons. Uh, multiple just reasons that include physical, economic, psychological, and social reasons, all of which are listed in Humanae Vitae. That, yes. What's the word implementation right above the arrow? Munis. M-U-N-U-S. M-U-N-U-S. So this afternoon I get my uh, examination from the academic dean on my performance. So I've twice had professors sit in on my classes and evaluate me. And the evaluation, curiously, did not critique my handwriting. Yeah, is that, is that not interesting? <laughs> so that, that must mean somehow the professors evaluating me have even worse handwriting? Or do we not want to comment? Okay, so that's going to be one thing we're looking at, a big thing. Um, 
I also want you, and this is only an introductory course, we're going to look at it at a reasonable amount of depth because it's a matter of such current controversy relevance, the contrast, the difference between natural family planning and contraception. I want you to walk away from this class at least with something of an ability to articulate that. So, natural family planning um, and how that is different from contraception. I'm going to note that both natural family planning and contraception have the same intention but a different means. So whether you're using natural family planning or whether you're using the pill or the condom, uh, the intention is the same. Tonight we are not seeking a child. That is our intention. If you're doing that in a Catholic sense, then there are just reasons for you to not be seeking a child. Yes? So say, you know, a couple of you got married and they have to consecrate their marriage at night. We're going let, to, let's pause there and when we, we'll spell that out in a bit. But they don't have to put things together that night. If they are, you know, I know many young couples that they know the timing of the, her month um, and the honeymoon night is going to have to postpone if they need to postpone having a child. Natural family planning. Uh, what natural family planning, what's involved? Uh, I'm guessing you have some awareness of this already. The woman, uh, self-observation. So she needs to chart her symptoms and by charting her physical symptoms she can calculate what her fertility is. So charting um, So it doesn't rely on, um, the modern methods for doing this are very different from the early half of the 20th century when those, it, such methods relied on um, what's called the rhythm method, presumed a 28-day cycle. Modern methods aren't presuming that, that day by day a woman is charting her symptoms whether her cycle that month is 28 days, 25, longer, um, her symptoms are going to enable her to know tonight am I fertile or am I not. So she, with her husband, this is something they are monitoring all the time. That means there needs to be dialogue between the two of them, communication, There has to be a reciprocal respect. Reciprocal. Are men good at communicating? No. Are they good at respecting? No. Are they good at dialogue? No. The process of natural family planning forces into the marriage dynamic 
these elements that actually are central for a good marriage. It also brings the fruit of self-mastery So there is periodic continence. So some days of the week, some days of the month, they have, if they're seeking not to have a child at this time for whatever reasons, um, that requires self-control. To engage in that self-control over a period of time requires growth and self-mastery. That is good for the man, good for the woman, good for their whole relationship. So it's not just that this is a thing the church randomly imposes, but it's actually good for their marriage. So as we'll note later, the divorce statistics indicate a vast difference between couples that use natural family planning who are much less to divorce, whether they're Catholic or not, than couples that use contraception. This aids the relationship, even though it involves a discipline and hard work. This just being part of our self-serving, consumeristic, me-ready-now culture uh, undermines the relationship. So that in brief is what we're going to be looking at today. Some big issues in terms of contemporary relevance. So let's turn to the notes, page one. So what is the core of the Christian message in this regard, uh, what our lecture, that marriage is ordered to family life. Marriage isn't just about the two of them, that marriage has a dynamic broader. So these two realities, namely marriage and family, fit together. And so our analysis will summarize the catechism by looking at these two things together, marriage and family. So very briefly, the fourth commandment, to honor your father and mother. So I note, I said this commandment covers many other relationships. So literally, the commandment is honor your father and mother. The catechism notes implicit within that are all kinds of other relationships. Michael, can you read that quote for us? Catechism also notes that this implicitly within the catechism works both ways, children to elders as well as elders to children. Uh, Brother Adam, can you read the next quote, this commandment? This commandment includes and presupposes the duties of parents, instructors, teachers, leaders, magistrates, those who govern, all who exercise authority over others or over a community of persons. Okay, and then just repeating what we've already noted when we looked at the social teaching of the church and the common good, the family, so quoting, the family is the original cell of social life. A man and a woman united in marriage together with their children form a family. This institution is prior to any recognition by public authority, which has an obligation to recognize it. It should be considered the normal reference point by which the different forms of family relationship are to be evaluated. So this modern political re 
formulating of family. Anytime there's an adult and a child, that's a family. The church is saying something else. There is a norm of what family is about, a husband, a wife, and ordering to a child. That is the norm, and anything else has its reference point to that as a norm. Even though, as we noted when we talked about divorce, that there are all kinds of reasons why in the history of human life that norm doesn't happen. A parent dies. Um, so that, that's the norm, but that doesn't mean that's the only way it can function at all. Then the sixth commandment, uh, which is, you shall not commit adultery. And I note this commandment encompasses the meaning of human sexuality. So we return to aspects of chastity later in this course when we consider the ninth commandment. So that's a few weeks away still. Um, today we're going to look at where marriage and family fit together. That's what we're going to look at today. So over the page. So I've got an entire page here quoting different bits of the Catechism, wanting to make one basic point, that there is a purpose in sex and sexuality. A purpose. And I start by noting that the modern mindset views sex and sexuality variously as being about pleasure, a thing with no commitment, a reality with no inherent purpose, as something simply biological and physical. If there is no purpose, you can do with it what you will. The key thing we need to grasp, be clear about, is there is a purpose built into sexuality, a purpose built into sex. Your happiness, the couple's happiness, the family's happiness, society's happiness, we need to know what is that purpose if we're going to find fulfillment. So I say, the Catechism, in contrast, speaks of sexuality as having a purpose. So what is that purpose? Well, I say, sex is ordered to marriage, to conjugal love. John Paul, can you read that quote for us? Sexuality is ordered to the conjugal love of man and woman. In marriage, the physical intimacy of the spouses becomes a sign and pledge of spiritual communion. Marriage bonds between baptized persons are sanctified by the sacrament. So, conjugal love, that's what it's ordered towards. Next, sex is personal, not just biological. Uh, Adam, can you read that quote for us? Sexuality, by means of which man and woman give themselves to one another through the acts which are proper and exclusive to spouses, is not something simply biological, but concerns the innermost being of the human person as such. It is realized in a truly human way only if it is an integral part of the love by which a man and woman commit themselves totally to one another until death. Next point. What is sex about? It is about self-giving. Yes, I'm guessing you've all heard some reference to this in sermons and catechesis. All of love is about the gift of self. Um, so I say this takes up the language of Vatican II in Gaudium et Spes of John Paul the Great in particular. Um, so one of his themes, all love is self-gift. That we give our time, we give our effort, we give our activity. Conjugal love, 
is a unique loving that you gives the body to the spouse. So love is giving of self, conjugal love, I give even my body to my spouse. So full self-gift gives our body exclusively, including our fertility, to our spouse. So what makes the giving of marriage different from the giving of friendship? It's a pivotal thing. Because in friendship you are giving yourself as well. What is different in marriage? It is total. It is exclusive. And it's mutual. And it's bodily. Those things are unique to, to marriage. Next point about sex, I quote, that it fosters self-giving. So if sex is about self-giving, it's not just a sign of that, but actually engaging in the marital act, the church says, somehow increases that self-giving, that love between the couple. Francisco, can you read that quote? The act of marriage by which intimate and chaste union of the spouses takes place are noble and honorable. They truly, the truly human performance of these acts fosters the self-giving. They signify the, and enriches the spouses in joy and gratitude. Gaudium et spes. Sexuality is a source of joy and pleasure. So I suppose we need perhaps to immediately note that isn't automatic. If you engage in sex in a selfish way with your spouse, it's not going to foster self-giving. If you in you know, all kinds of ways, sex doesn't automatically foster self-giving. But when engaged with in a part of a conjugal loving embrace, it fosters the very thing it signifies, namely conjugal love. What about pleasure? Uh, you know, when I talk about moral theology, I've often made this point about pleasure. Pleasure is a good thing. Pleasure is from God. We're not Puritans. The Catechism makes the point, pleasure in sex is likewise from God. Josh, can you read this quote for us? The Creator himself established that in the generative function, spouses should experience pleasure and enjoyment of body and spirit. Therefore, the spouses do nothing evil in seeking this pleasure and enjoyment. They accept what the Creator has intended for them. At the same time, spouses should know how to keep Okay, now contrast with Puritanism and Jansenism that hold pleasure with sus suspicion. And you know, here in our American culture, even when we are thinking we're not Protestants, Protestantism, Puritanism is in the air all around us. Even if you've not got the suspicion of pleasure from those Puritans, you may well have got that suspicion of pleasure from Irish strains of Jansenism uh, that have been very widespread through America. Um, these mindsets that view pleasure with suspicion. If I'm enjoying myself, God must be a little disappointed. Um, can you look at God when you're enjoying yourself? Can you look at God when you're engaging in something pleasurable. If you can't, there is something defective in what you're doing and probably in your whole mindset. So either it's something defective in that 
that fifth donut you're eating, you can't look at God as you're enjoying the pleasure because you're realizing I've gone beyond the limit here, the limits of what is just moderation. Or there's something defective in how I think about God and the human person and pleasure. I know Aristotle and St. Thomas. So pleasure, according to them, completes every activity with different pleasures for different activities. So quoting St. Thomas directly, the divine mind, the author of nature, joins pleasures to natural operations. So you eat the donut and there's a pleasure that comes. You complete the paper, there's a pleasure that comes in that completion that is not a physical and mental pleasure. You go for a good run and there is an endorphin high that goes with that successful engaging in physical exercise. You engage in the marital act and the completion of that brings a corresponding pleasure. Pleasure is just one of the signs of an action completed, an action well done. The Aristotle makes a point in his analysis in the Nicomachean Ethics, which you have done. The whole thing about if you try and pursue pleasure in itself without what it goes with, then the whole thing falls apart. So you engage in something knowing it will bring pleasure, wanting the pleasure it will bring, but if you somehow try to separate out the pleasure, which we do try and do too often, the whole thing falls apart. So quoting the Catechism, sexual pleasure is morally disordered when sought for itself, isolated from its procreative and unitive purposes. Okay, I've said a lot on that page. If it's uh, disordered, then we'd have to say it's objectively bad. In itself as a natural functioning, the body just releases on, depending how you want to colloquially phrase this, taking itself on a test drive periodically, whether you have caused that or not. Um, how you engage with that consciously if you're awake or waking up while that is happening, then a moral action engages. But if among the different scenarios he was going through, um, you're not actually awake while that happens at all, it still happens, but there's nothing moral of any significance there. But if while waking you further stimulate yourself during it, then it's not something spontaneous, it's then something you have caused. Yes. He mentioned something to that, but he said like, at that point, you've already like crossed a barrier that you wouldn't have actually gone to as far as like arousal, I guess. And you're not culpable for that. Um, how you engage with it can become a matter of culpability. So um, I think when we'll look at masturbation in a few sessions time, um, 
the manuals before the council would specify if you take pleasure in it somehow, then you can make it an act where you're in your mind divorcing the pleasure from its proper context. We're going to return to that question when we look at self-abuse in a couple of weeks. Um, other questions, thoughts? There's a lot here, yes? This is an overview. But the key point, as I said on top of that page, there's a purpose in sexuality. Page three. Um, I've titled this page, The Ends of Marriage. So this is the classical terminology. The catechism doesn't use the language of ends. I'm using this as a kind of gloss to kind of contextualize it. But it does refer to these two realities, the unitive and the procreative. And the key point the Catechism repeats is that they are morally inseparable um, and in some sense they're meaning interpenetrating. So I say, as noted on the previous page, sexuality is ordered to conjugal love, to marriage. But what is marriage itself ordered towards? What makes marriage different from other relationships. And I say the tradition has spoken of three ends in marriage, ranking them as when you do proper theology, we'll look at procreation and the education of children, the good of the spouses, mutual help, the marital bond, and thirdly, the least glamorous, but a remedy for concupiscence. See, 20th century terminology has noted the, that these ends cannot be morally separated. That's been the key focus of church statements the second half of the 20th century. So Humanae Vitae in 1968 spoke about the procreative and unitive meanings as inseparable. They belong together. The Catechism similarly speaks. Jake, can you read the first bullet points? The spouse's union achieves. Michael, can you read the next? Marriage and the family are ordered to the good of the spouses and to the procreation and education of children. Okay, I said the catechism doesn't speak about ends. Actually, it does. It does use the word ends there. Um, it doesn't rank them in a hierarchy, but it's making the key point these two things cannot be separated without being violated. Uh, Father, so a couple married, they're using natural family planning and they, they've been tracking their chart and everything. And she's pretty sure she's not gonna have, uh, she's not uh, fertile this this night. And they wanna have sex, they wanna have, have that union. How's that not, but they, they're pretty certain that they're not gonna have the baby, they're not gonna conceive. Isn't it that kind of like separating appropriate and unitive? The conclusion is separate but that doesn't mean the meanings have been separated. We're gonna... They you need kinda, to have sex to be in union, but they don't mean to have it. 
but they haven't caused the separation. Because at certain okay. times of the month, the two meanings are there, but one of them cannot be actualized. The fertility, the you, um, the procreative can only be actualized on certain days. But they still have to have the, the openness to new life, regardless. Uh, I'm going to put that word open aside because that's a confusing word, because that might imply a subjective attitude. We're going to come back to that. You're, you're on to the next page before already. The, the first point I want to note, Union and procreation. In marriage, these two meanings relate to each other. That's one of the things the church wants to say. I say these two ends mutually interpenetrate each other. That phrase I'm taking from uh, Dr. Perry Cajal, one of uh, footnotes him there. Um, he's, if you're looking for a good treatment on the ends of marriage, the goods of marriage, his book, The Mystery of Marriage, I think is the best I've come across and articulating this. Here I'm summarizing how these two things, union serves children and children serves union. So first, how does union serve children? Well, I say the bond of the couple serves the good of the offspring or potential offspring. The offspring need the security of a stable home. Offspring need the example of parents who love each other. Is that direction of the relationship pretty obvious? That, that one's pretty more self-evident, to us at least, casually Catholic. Um, our, sec our secular world tries to ignore even that and say, well, children don't need parents. Children, children are very resilient, you'll sometimes hear it said, that they can endure all... Anyway, union of the parents is good for the children. But it also works the other way around. Children serve the union. Having a child together bonds a couple together. That first seeking to have a child together bonds the couple. This is a common endeavor that they are engaged in. They're yearning for a common goal. Quoting Gaudi Metzpez, children contribute to the well-being of the parents themselves. Notes also, children increase selfless love and thus purify love because parents' individual needs are put, before, put aside uh, before the needs of the child. So the child screaming in the middle of the night forces the parent to purify their, their love. So the child serves the good of the marriage. In addition, a husband and a wife know each other through their child. The husband and a wife reveal themselves to each other in new ways as a result of having a child. And again, the husband and the wife tend for each other in new ways as they tend to the needs of the offspring. We could expand on this, but various ways, having a child together, seeking to have a child together, yearning for a child together, the process of raising that child together bonds the couple together. So the procreative serves the unitive meaning as well as the unitive meaning serving the good of, of the children, of the, the procreative.
At the bottom there I quote John Paul the Great, who says that the unitive meaning is in a certain sense by means of the procreative. Either procreative meaning bonds the couple together, that without the procreative meaning, the couple are not truly bound by the marital act. When you pluck children out of marriage, which so many modern unions have, you've deprived it of the thing that most binds them together. Even when a couple divorce and separate and they want to be apart, if they've got a child together, it still kind of connects them. That having a child together holds you together. So the child serves the union as well as the union serving the child. These two meanings that the church is saying you can't separate these without violating the whole thing. Overleaf. Okay, this page we're looking at the question of responsible parenthood. So, not having endless children. So, first I note at the top. Children is the mission of marriage, munis. So Catechism says fecundity is a gift. Hunter, could you read that quote for us? Married couples. Married couples should regard it as their proper mission to transmit human life and to educate their children. They should realize that they are thereby cooperating with the love of God the Creator and are, in a certain sense, its interpreters. They will fulfill this duty with a sense of human and Christian responsibility. Okay, let's just pause and note there that is obviously what a whole lot of people are not thinking is of at all. That they have a mission to have children. That what makes marriage different from all other unions, a few things, but one of the key things is this mission to have children. Society needs children. Marriage exists for the common good, not just for the two of them to be happy together. And that the type of happiness they will find together is in being faithful to the nature of that dynamic between them, which has this ordering towards something beyond them, but that holds them together, this ordering to children. Now that said, the church speaks of responsible parenthood. So I say, a couple do not need to constantly seek to have children. But there are many grounds for seeking to delay having a child, maybe indefinitely. So the Catechism says that they are responsible for sharing in the creative power and fatherhood of God. Could you read the next book, a particular aspect? A particular aspect of this responsibility concerns the regulation of procreation. For just reasons, spouses may wish to space the birth of their children. It is their duty to make certain that their desire is not motivated by selfishness, but is in conformity with the generosity appropriate to responsible parenthood. So the word used there, space their children. So see, children may be spaced, not for casual reasons, but for just reasons. Uh, so this is a question of justice. And here I quote an author, Janet Smith, who I think expresses this very... Could you read this, John Paul? 
Spouses should ask, would it be just to God, to your marriage, to the children we already have, to the children, to the child we might have, and even to society, were we to have a child or another child at this time? So justice is what you render to others, owe to others. So all of those categories, injustice to a couple should be asking themselves, is it just to be seeking to have a child or just to be not seeking to have a child? By entering into marriage, you've entered into this thing that is, among other things, about children. So, what are the just grounds? Actually, I don't list them here. Um, the just reasons. Physical, economic, psychological, social. Psychological. So it might be that your spouse is suffering from some kind of breakdown, some kind of psychological state where having a child now is just not going to be appropriate, good, um, Economically is what we might have most frequently put to us. You can't afford a child now. Though that is a very variable thing. You know, is having a child now going to interfere with your perfect middle class lifestyle? Is that the measure? That the perfect middle class lifestyle, that is the, the given? Um, physical things. It might be that your child, your, the illness in your other children means that it would be unfair to them to be seeking to have another child now. So you owe it to your current disabled children to not seek to have another child. There, there are many variables the church kind of puts out there as just causes. Not casual causes, but just causes. Less that they aren't in need of like uh, needing the procreative end, but they're not thwarting it. They're, yeah, so they're, they're not thwarting it. They're engaging in the act fully, but one of the uh, ends of the act cannot be realized if they, they know they are infertile. So that the act has two meanings. They're not thwarting the procreative, but the procreative, because they're not fertile, is not going to come about in actualization. But they're not thwarting that meaning. They're just using the other meaning. We're going to come on to the difference between NFP and contraception in a minute if we allow ourselves time to get there. Um, I just want to note here the question I say, is responsible parenthood a post-conciliar deviation from tradition? Have you heard this question on your rad-trad circles? No. Um, if you haven't heard it yet, you may well do. Um, 
So I say some traditional groups doubt NFP, periodic consonance, um, periodic abstinence, and responsible parenthood. Or I say refer to it only with extreme skepticism. For example, if you go to uh, the Society of Pius X, who are now not excommunicated, but they are canonically irregular. Yeah, so they are in the church. That's a diversion. A, a group of rad trads. Okay. Um, an article on their website, they're called The Problem of Natural Family Planning. Uh, Jake, could you read that to us? Among the varied problems. Ubiquitous. Ubiquitous promotion of natural family planning. The cal calendric method of abstaining from marital relations to avoid pregnancy. Indeed, the practice of NFP is now so widespread in the conciliar church that it has given rise to new official ecclesiastical position. The NFP counselor, this person, more often a woman, has the job of teaching couples how to ensure they will not bear children until they deem this desirable. So if this were... As if this were a matrimonial option. matrimonial option. While the church has allowed periodic abstinence amongst married couples, this has always been extraordinary for extreme cases and only for a limited time according to the circumstances but not as a normal state of married life, as, as is being commonly toted and practiced today. So what's being described here, this terrible thing that there are out there in the church, in so many parishes, these NFP counselors, and they're women, terrible. <laughs> um, um, what's being attacked here is the notion that this should be normative in the life of the church. So he uses the phrase there, this is only really for extraordinary, extreme cases. That isn't, however, the language used by Pius XI before the council or Paul VI after the council, who refer to just reasons, serious reasons, but not extreme reasons. Exactly. So I'm, I'm, I'm not approving this quote. I'm condemning it. Sorry, if, if that wasn't clear enough. I'm, I'm just noting this is an opinion out there and you will come across people trying to be uber Catholic. Yes. Um, and on some level, we want them to be uber Catholic, but not to be crazy Catholic. Um, because if you are thinking you've got to have child after child after child after child after child, you're going to, as I quoted Janet Smith there, do injustice to some of your other children if you can't afford that, if other burdens in your life mean you won't be able to care for those children. So spacing them is the language the church uses, but that spacing might go for 30 years. So something in your job, your situation, your health, that spacing could be the next 40 years, the, the entire rest of your fertile union. Um, 
as long as that situation continues. But that children per se are what marriage is about. Children per se are normal. But there are grounds to be spacing. Yeah. Be grounds for never having children? Yes, indeed. Okay. Now, if you started your marriage intending to never have children, that would render the marriage null and void. Because marriage has among its meanings procreated. So if you intend from the beginning to never have a child, that would render the marriage null and void. So you'd be able to, among other things, apply for a declaration of nullity for that. You, you get, after the marriage, uh, the husband says, well, I never intended for us to have children. Um, and you do come across that. That then isn't a valid marriage. But to come to that realization almost immediately because of some factors, if those factors are just reasons, that could go on for the re whole rest of the marriage. How would that statement apply to couples who get married past fertility? Can we come back to that question in a minute? Because that's really, the, what's the difference between natural family planning and contraception is really what's implicit in your question. Let's skip, okay, so I just note, last bullet point there, I said, Traddy groups never footnote old preconciliar manuals to justify their position because the preconciliar manuals don't justify their position. Popes Pius XI and XII articulated this teaching. It was not invented by Paul VI after the Council. Okay, and what I'm, is what I'm saying clear enough there? Yes? Um, okay, page five, natural family planning. What is it? Yeah, so this page, what is this? I'm trying to describe to you kind of starting kind of the physical process, what is natural family planning? I say modern science enables a woman to chart her fertility through the different days of the month. So this does not depend on a regular 28-day month, but on observing daily symptoms. Um, the 1950s, before the council, um, the science of this was very primitive. They knew Women are fertile some days of the month, not fertile others. A woman would count 28 days from her last period, and that counting of 28 days gave a certain prediction, but lots of women are not that regular. Uh, and so this method was mockingly referred to as Vatican roulette. Yeah. Um, so. You know, it had some basis in science, but it wasn't very accurate. The key point I want to make to you is modern methods are not like that. They're theologically based on the same premise, but scientifically very different. That a woman notes her different methods, her temperature, her mucus, the different things she can chart in her body that she can be aware of and know today is a fertile day or today is not a fertile day. and then chart that day by day over a month. Um, you may have seen different charts that sometimes have a red or a green sticker on the different days of the month. Um, different ways of keeping track to try and make it simple and easy. Um, 
So what does charting fertility involve? Well, I say it involves communication between a wife and the husband. And I know communication aids a marriage. It involves growth in self-mastery and avoidance of self-seeking. So this is another important way it aids a marriage. So the husband has to control himself. He can't just, as on the pill, uh, I'm in the mood for it tonight. He's got to respect what's going on in her, in her body. He's got to engage in her in a completely different way. And if you as future priests have the same experience I've had repeatedly as a priest, when you have couples come to you that have been contracepting for many years, and at some stage they take their faith seriously enough that they say, okay, this whole Catholic thing, we're going to switch to this NFP thing. And they start doing that. I'm sure you will hear what I have heard husbands say. It changes how they relate to their wife. And it changes it for the better. They have to respect their woman differently. Respect her bodily respect that there's stuff going on in her that isn't going on in him. And that helps the marriage. Sometimes, I remember one couple coming to me, the primary question, the woman, was um, kind of the, the ecological criteria. You know, there's lots of women feminist concerns about all the pollution type effects that the hormones of the pill are doing to the woman's body. Uh, so the risk of heart problems, the risk of cancer, all of which, you know, the various media reports try to say, oh, it's a very low risk, very low risk, but it is a risk. Um, as well as women who just sense that there is something being, their body is being treated as a problem in how these pills are treating them. So there are people who will get interested in this from ecological and feminist concerns, not from Catholic concerns. And that can be, in a sense, something we can help direct and to say, well, yes, the concern you have is actually part of our concern, but we see an even bigger picture here in the meaning of a man, a woman, a relationship, and so forth. Okay, quoting the Catechism, could you read this one for us? Periodic continence, that is, the methods of birth regulation based on self-observation and the use of infertile periods is in conformity with the objective criteria of morality. These methods respect the bodies of the spouses, encourage tenderness between them, and favor the education of an authentic freedom. Michael, can you read the next quote from John Paul's the choice of the natural rhythms involves accepting the cycle of the person that is the woman, and thereby accepting dialogue, reciprocal respect, shared responsibility, and self-control. To accept the cycle and to enter into dialogue means to recognize both the spiritual and corporal character of conjugal communion, and to the personal love of its requirement of fidelity. In this context, the couple comes to experience how conjugal communion is enriched with those values of tenderness and affection which constitute the inner soul of human sexuality in its physical dimension also. In this way, sexuality is respected and promoted in its truly and fully human dimension and is never used as an object that, by breaking the personal unity of soul and body, strikes at God's creation itself at the level of the deepest interaction of nature and person. 
So at a practical level, do we have an, an idea of what's meant by natural family planning here? There are many different techniques of how, which symptoms a woman is charting, how she measures those, uh, the Billings method, the Crichton method, um, many different methods. The science of those methods, on one level, the church doesn't pass judgment on. The fact that they are acknowledging the woman at a level of not animal bodily, but natural. Yeah, when we looked at natural law, I said artificial isn't the enemy of natural, unnatural is the enemy of natural. Respecting what she is, which in this case includes respecting her body. Over the page. Overleaf. Okay, I've got a little chart here. This is a handout I've given out in multiple parishes where I've served as pastor to try and summarize the three things in contrast here. I said here, the promises of contraception have failed. So I am so old, I can remember when I was in high school, contraception being promoted to us as if it was a new thing and us being told, if we all go down this route, society will become this wonderful, happier place. And you can still find in various places, and if you look hard on the internet, samples of old leaflets making these promises that were made by the Planned Parenthood of the day. So what did contraception promise? Improved husband-wife relationships. You're not going to have those annoying children in the way. You're going to have a better relationship with your spouse. There's therefore going to be less divorce and less family stress. That women would be freed from male domination and there would be less abortion and less teenage pregnancy. Now we read those claims now and it's, are you not embarrassed for them that they made these claims? Um, now at the time, 1968, Pope Paul VI made prophecies, warnings, that at the time he was just mocked for. But what did he say contraception would lead to? He said there would be a barrier in the relationship between a husband and a wife, that the condom in a sense is a sign of, at a physical level, a barrier between the husband and wife. That there would be more divorce, there would be more promiscuity, there would be less family stability. That there would be an increase in women being seen as sexual objects and that there would be more abortion. And all of those prophecies now seem, how, how, how could we not have predicted that? Natural family planning, what happens there instead? Point one, it increases communication between a husband and a wife. That there is with that less divorce and that it respects a woman's bodily cycle and views her as a whole rather than the whole pornographic woman as an object thing that the contraceptive mentality has just enabled to flourish. In italics I then say, American studies have shown that the divorce rate among couples who use natural family planning is much less than the divorce rate among couples who use artificial contraception. These studies are not religion-based and include many non-Catholics who follow natural family planning fertility awareness methods. One reason for this seems to be that NFP increases communication between a husband and a wife. 
So here, the American figures which cover people of all religions and none. The divorce rate among those using natural family planning is between 2 and 4%, where the divorce rate among those using contraception is about 50%, which is the same as society in general. That is a vast statistical difference, and it demands an explanation. And the church has an explanation. It says, if you use contraception, it will weaken your marriage. Not automatically causing divorce, but heading in that trajectory. <coughs> so I go on, I say, the higher divorce rate among couples who use artificial contraception is a sign, though admittedly not a proof, that the separation of the unitive and procreative meanings in the marital act in contraception tragically tends towards the separation of other things in a relationship. As I say in bold, the NFP contraception distinction might seem like a technical difference for the church to be obsessed with, with this, but the change made in the husband-wife relationship is significant and measurable. Have you heard of those statistics before? So when you have couples come to you for marriage preparation, these statistics are a thing I point every couple to, and I say, okay, I know that you're not coming to Mass. I know that you're not taking what I'm saying very seriously, but I know at this stage you want your marriage to last. Here's a statistic indicating there's a different way of the two of you relating to each other. At the very least, go to the NFP counselor, learn what this method is, um, and at least consider taking this on board. Okay, 15 minutes on page 7, which is a number of you asked questions kind of heading towards where this page is, which is, what is the difference between contraception and natural family planning? So I know it has the same intention we're not going to have a child tonight. That's the intention, but a different means to get there. And remember, we had the whole lecture, the end doesn't justify the means. So same end in both, no child tonight, but how are we going to achieve that? Reading my notes, I say, not all means to avoid pregnancy are legitimate. Remember, the end does not justify the means. Contraception avoids pregnancy by directly thwarting the procreative meaning of the act. Natural family planning, in contrast, does not change the nature of the act. Rather, it simply spaces the use of the marital act so that a couple only have sexual intercourse on the days when they're not fertile. So they either engage in a normal sexual act, but on infertile days, or they engage, or they don't engage in an act at all. But when they engage in the act, it's a normal act. It's just which day of the month that they've chosen. So the Catechism says there needs to be objective criteria here. Uh, Josh, can you read that quote each and every? Each and every marriage act must remain open per se to the transmission of life. This particular doctrine, expounded on numerous occasions by the Magisterium, is based on the inseparable connection established by God 
which man on his own initiative may not raise, between the unitive significance and the appropriative significance, which are both inherent to the marriage act. So what's meant there? The word open appears in that translation, which is um, a rather loose, I would say, unhelpful uh, rendering. The Latin I quote there is per se destinatus, uh, which other Baskin website translations say is retain its natural potential. What does that mean? So the Catechism quotes Humana Vita using a technical term often poorly translated. So the word open might mistaken, be mistaken to mean still intending a child or a possible child, a subjective attitude. So pausing there a second, open might there seem to mean, well, because natural family planning isn't that predictable, you're still kind of open. No, that isn't what it means at all. It's not about your attitude. It's about something in the structure of the act that either has or hasn't been changed. Yeah. It seems like that would be the reason why like, the radical traditional would go in the way that they do. Because it's like, Okay, I think I can half think where you're going with that, but come back to it in a minute. Let, let's just finish this section and see if this clarifies anything. So what does per se destinatus imply instead? It implies an objective inherent ordering, not just a subjective attitude. Now Janet Smith makes this comparison. She says a blind eye is still ordered to sight. Whereas blinding yourself with sticking a pencil in your eye attacks the meaning of the eye. But using a partially working eye hasn't caused the partial function. So if I've lost my glasses and my eyes are working but not fully working, it's okay to have them use them as much as they are when I engage in the marital act and the unitive meaning is present but the procreative meaning is not present, I haven't separated those meanings, but they're not both going to be actualized tonight. I haven't caused the separation. Okay, similarly, can I, can I just finish here and then come back to the question because there's a, a good quote here I think that explains it. Similarly, I say, sexual intercourse on a day when you are not fertile engages the unitive meaning even while knowing that the procreative meaning is not going to be realized. The procreative meaning is still there, even as it's there in a blind eye, but you know it's not going to be actualized, realized. The, but the meaning is still in the act. Hunter, can you read this? So this quote is from uh, an author called Elizabeth Anscombe. Um, she wrote this before the council, no, just after the, um, but I think that is the best articulation of this I've come across. For you use the rhythm method not just by having intercourse now, but by not having it next week, say. 
and not having it next week isn't something that does something to today's intercourse to turn it into an infertile act. Today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. Okay, that's pivotal. Michael, can you read that same passage to us again? Because this, a lot hinges on this. What you just read? Yeah. Or you use the rhythm method not just by having intercourse now, but by not having it next week, say. And not having it next week isn't something that does something, isn't something that does something to today's intercourse to turn it into an infertile act. Today's intercourse is an ordinary act of intercourse, an ordinary marriage act. Okay, let's not read it, say it in different words. So, Today is an infertile day. You know it's an infertile day. You engage in relations with your wife. It's an utterly normal act you engage in. You haven't done anything to the act. You know on this day of the month it won't be fertile, but you haven't done anything to the act. The only thing you do in terms of not having a child is a week from now, when you know your wife is fertile, then you abstain. What you do is not engage in the act. And that doesn't change what you do when you do engage in the act on the infertile days. So you either engage in a normal act or you don't engage in the act. Those are the two things you're doing. All that's happening is that you're deciding when you will engage in the act. And there are many reasons why you would decide when or not to engage in the act. That it's a romantic evening, that you know, all kinds of things. Among those are, is this a fertile or infertile day? Yeah. Yes. That there's some, like, the marital debt needs to be, like, constantly fulfilled, which just seems kind of. <laughs> or it seems like a better argument for them would be you should, you should only have sex on days that you are fertile. And the rest, you should abstain because it's not meaning the end of procreation. That would seem to, to yeah, or something like that. Um, <laughs> Could you repeat this to somebody else? You're either engaging in a normal act that you haven't altered, you haven't thwarted its meaning in any way, or you're just abstaining and not engaging in the act at all. Those are the two things you are doing. And with natural family planning, you are just deciding when that will happen, which days of the month. Can you repeat that? Okay, you're either engaging in a normal act that you haven't changed in any way, you haven't thwarted, opposed its meaning, or you are abstaining. This is a big topic in terms of pastoral implication. The divorce statistics I've indicated there, I'm trying to map out how 
this isn't just uh, some random rule from the church, but it has implications for all kinds of things in the marriage relationship of the couple. Um, the flip side of that in in vitro fertilization you have in your notes there is in the catechism. We're not going to be able to cover that in this course. You will cover when you do a bioethics course. Yeah. Janet Smith makes the point that the church, while giving these reasons, doesn't make these reasons very specific, implying that actually this is a case where conscience does come in. The couple themselves should educate their conscience, not make this decision randomly, but it is ultimately their decision. And as well as the question of it being right or wrong, it's possible to be generous or less generous <coughs> even when you're not in a question of sin or not sin. Um, so I have had many occasions couples come to me asking, what should we do? I have sought to give them guidance. I have, but it is ultimately their decision. Yeah. So in that situation, help them to form their conscience, but you're not actually telling them you do A and not B. Right, because I can't replace their conscience, but I want to educate it. I think you also, even thinking of it practically even, um, you don't want them to resent you and resent the church if they end up not liking the conclusion of what they did. So by helping them to make the decision, they're going to be comfortable with the decision they make. Okay, what have we looked at today? Among other things, we have looked at contraception, natural family planning, in the broader context of what is marriage about. Marriage has an ordering, obviously, to the union of the man and the woman, the husband and the wife, the wife and the husband. But what makes that union different from all other unions is being total, being reciprocal, being bodily, and having this inherent mission towards children.